New Testament reading this morning is from Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, Philippians chapter 2, starting verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, now, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his great good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me just start by saying um, how good it is to be with you this morning. I think it's been seven years since I've been last able to, to come and to be with you all. But it's great to be with you, and thank you, uh, Pastor Tony, for letting me preach and uh, giving me this opportunity to share about our ministry. Let me just start by saying, if I think you'll agree with me that we live in such um, interesting times. Life has been very chaotic over the past several years. We've had the virus, the pandemic, there's been societal upheaval, and in my part of the world, there's war. The big question, I think, for all of us at all times is, what is the Christian response? How do we live with faith? So to do so, I just want to turn your attention to a couple verses in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. I'm going to read them for us now. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us this day to worship you, to come into your presence. We ask, God, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear you speak now. Speak to us, and through your Holy Spirit, make us more like Jesus, our Savior. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want to start by putting these verses a little bit in context. You know Jesus here in chapter 5, he started preaching a sermon. It's what the sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the sermon starts with a series of blessings. They're blessings of, or beatitudes. And each pronouncement, if you will, sets forth what a Christian is on the inside. And they point then to the spiritual blessings one receives when they're walking with God. In other words, they're a description 
of the character of a believer. They tell what a Christian is. The verses that I just read, they continue that idea. They're describing what a believer is. Simply put, from these words of Jesus, Christians are salt and light. Let me say there's no exception. We cannot say, I want the mercy of God, or I want to be a child of God, or I want to see God. Those were all some of the blessings that Jesus pronounced there in the first 12 verses. We can't say that we want those, but we don't want then the responsibility of being salt and light. We can't say the task is too difficult. I only want the blessings, but not the duty. Jesus says that's not impossible. I'm defining you also with your duty that you are salt and light. There is no choosing. It's really what we are. But I do think there's a change in these verses. Jesus has pivoted from just describing who we are to now giving us a little bit of action, what we should be doing. His followers, uh, uh, he's showing them their character. And now he's saying how we should act. The first idea I want to point out to you is that we must see that to be a Christian is not someone who then retreats from the world. He does not live in isolation. Jesus is putting us out into the world. So we're not just to find some sort of holy community and live among ourselves and be happy with that. That that was the error of the monastic orders. They tried to escape from the world. They separated themselves in order that the sinful tendencies of the world would not affect them. And of course, that did not work. As Jesus said later in Matthew's gospel, uh, later in this this sermon, uh, no, actually it's Acts of Matthew 15. He says, sin comes from the heart. And it's out of the heart that evil spreads. Evil ideas, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. So the Christian's to be in the world. He bears a relationship to the world. But now the big question is, what is it? And to this, Jesus answers, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, that's not only a description of the Christian, but it also begins to explain the world. It's, when he speaks about the earth or the world, he's speaking about humanity in general. Who are, who are the people we love among that are not believers? So the question that I ask is, what do we observe when we look at out, out at our fellow man? I would suggest today we've rewritten the rule book. We we no longer consider anything to be wrong, anything to be immoral, anything that to be addictive. The only bad thing is if we put restrictions on someone. Don't tell me what I can do and what I can't do. Don't take away my entertainment. And gone today are the virtues of self-control or duty or sacrifice or honor. 
or even just thinking of others around you and taking them into account. And I think this is exactly what Jesus is speaking about when he then says, you are the salt of the earth. We're to live among these people that have these ideas. And he's directly implying that there's a rottenness in the philosophies of the world. There's corruption in the neighbors to which we live aside. And so the biblical account is that everything around us has fallen. It's sinful, it's bad. Its tendencies are to evil, to fighting, to vices. It's rotten, it's polluted. I, the Bible is full of illustrations of this fact. I, we don't have to leave the pages of Genesis to just to see the effect of sin in the world. You know, shortly after the, the first two children were born and they became adults, what took place? There was murder. Three chapters, two chapters later, God pronounces judgment on the world and he's going to send the flood. A chapter after the flood, we have the debauchery of Noah and the shameful act of Ham. And the stories go on and on and on. The surprising idea for us as Christians should not be the state of the world in which we live. We should not be surprised at how sinful it is. Rather, we should look at the world and we should be surprised that it's not worse than it really is. That there's still any, there's still life and there's some goodness in it. But it's into that rottenness that Jesus then sends us as salt. In other words, to stem the tide of evil, to point to people where there's deliverance, to where there's hope. So how do we do so? Notice the particular charge. He says, you are the salt of the earth. A, a preacher of yesteryear said it this way, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. That's the emphasis on this passage. It's the church, it's the believers that are able to make headway, to make changes in this world. And how do we do so? It's because there's a general, uh, 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 an essential character difference between us and the world. That's been the first, or the emphasis of the first 12 verses of this chapter. There's a change that has begun to take place. When God begins to reveal his grace and his mercy, that begins to affect the inside. It affects our character and it changes us. And we begin to be changed from the inside out. It changes our thoughts, our actions, our words. We're no longer dead to the things of God, but we're made alive and, and the law becomes delightful. We're a new creation. That's some of the scriptures or the language of scripture that describes us as Christians. We now enjoy living with God to following him, to knowing his ways and living for his glory. But that makes us completely unique and different. And I think that's the emphasis Jesus is putting on it. Salt is, was essentially used as a preservative on meat. It was to stop the meat from rotting. And that's why Jesus, when he says later in that the, the second verse we read, uh, if the salt has lost its flavor, it's not good for anything. 
It should be thrown out and trampled underfoot. I think if, unless we clearly understand this, that we are to be different, that we're to, 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 uh, to have a different lifestyle, different thoughts, different dreams than every non-believer, then we really don't understand the gospel. The Christian is unique and an outstanding individual. There should be something that marks us out that we follow Jesus, and it's easily recognized. It could be just the words we use or the habits we have or the activities we don't participate in. And it becomes obvious that we're different. Peter put it this way. Your friends think it's strange that you no longer participate in their immorality that they do. And then they're going to ask, what is it the hope that you have? could be just the joy we show on our faces. Despite whatever is happening in our lives, we have confidence that God is with us, and that gives us joy. I'm just trying to stress there's got to be external differences between us and the world, those around us. In my city, it should be a simple distinction. One of the first things I, I noticed when I moved to my city in Russia, Kazan's the city in Kazan, one of the first things I noticed was oftentimes cars would park in parking spaces and then they would cover up their license plate. It was during COVID. Some of them would just put a, you know, one of those surgical masks and they would cover up the, the numbers. In the wintertime, there's always snow, so some didn't have the mask, so they would just pack a snowball and put it on the numbers. Some have elect, uh, magnetic license plates, so they can just take them off real quick and easy and put them on when they're ready to leave. I'm like, what is going on? Why are people removing their license plate numbers? They don't want to pay for parking. And so to enforce the parking rules, there's a guy that comes around and takes pictures of your license plate number. He doesn't take the time to remove masks or snowballs. And so they're trying to save 50 cents an hour. And this is on cars that are Porsches, Lexuses, BMWs, and they don't want to pay 50 cents an hour. Or I remember getting on the bus one time and, and I got on with four young guys and for some reason they caught my attention. We got on the bus, we took our spots and I was just watching them. I like to observe people and I was watching them and they were looking up and down the bus and then they started giving each other high fives. I'm like, what is going on? Why are they high fiving each other? And then I realized there was no conductor on the bus. And so what that meant was you're on your honor system. You had to go to the bus driver to pay for your ride. And if you didn't want to, you could sneak off without paying. So they got a 10 cent free ride and they were rejoicing. I could talk about bigger issues. I started with the small, the trivial. But there's many people that think it's okay to, 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 to take, if you will, from some non-entity that they don't know, the government or the rich people, so they don't pay their taxes. They file for bankruptcy to avoid loans that they've taken out, or they pirate software 
or music or movies. But then it's also very common in my city for people just to cheat other people, to divorce without any biblical reason, to have children out of wedlock, or even to have an abortion for convenience. The trouble is I know believers who thinks it's okay to lie, cheat, and steal if you do not get caught. And what Jesus is calling us as salt is to be different, to actually do good, to do what is right, to do what is holy, godly, in order to stop the rot. That's the main function of salt, as I said in the ancient days. It was to retard the spoiling of food, to stop the decay. And we do so by doing what is right and good. We love God's law and attempt to fulfill it. So my challenge for you is examine your life, even down to the things that are small and in your mind trivial. Are you different than the world around you? I want to move on to the next metaphor that Jesus used. Not only are we to be salt of the earth, but we're to be light of the world. I think we can think of it this way. The salt is sort of that negative connotation. We are different by what we do in order to stop the evil from spreading. We're to stand against the world and its philosophies and do what is right according to God. But being light is more positive. It points to a better way. It gives hope. It gives answers to, I think, the questions that everybody asks, questions of purpose and meaning, of identity, of belonging. Those questions we all ask. Who am I? Where do I belong? What's my purpose? And Jesus is saying clearly that if we are the light of the world, we're pointing people to answers to the, those questions. Light versus darkness, it's such a fitting metaphor for the world we live in. Just consider the following examples from what I would say, maybe I'm a little outdated, but the, the, the two of the today's leading philosophers, these, were, these are statements said in the last 10 years. The first one's Richard Dawkins, and he says this, the universe is made up of electrons and selfish genes. Such a universe is neither good nor bad in intention. Therefore, we should expect that there's no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Just blind indifference. Now, I appreciate the honesty that he speaks with, but such a worldview is so dark and it's empty. Or the other philosopher I'm picking, picking from is, is that of the thoughts of Sam Harris. He said that his worldview does not offer the follower any purpose or meaning. Life is just life. You live it and you die. You try to make the world or at least your little sphere a little bit better than you found it, but that's all. And he says, quite pointedly, don't look for the materialistic worldview, the one that's based on science and facts. Don't look for that to give you motivation to get up in the morning or to be kind or to do what is right. It cannot do it. Is that not the philosophies 
of the world today, of everybody around us. And it's into that dark world, that world devoid of meaning and of purpose that Jesus sends us. And he calls us to be lights, to shine truth and give answers to these questions, to give joy and hope. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but to me, the astounding, the astounding idea in this verse is Jesus says it's that you are the light of the world. When I first read it, I said, wait a minute, Jesus, I know my Bible. In John, it says, you are the light of the world. And we know the stories, right? The first one was Jesus, or they brought a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and they wanted him to condemn her, and he eventually, they all walk away, and he gives her hope, and he gives her life, and he says to go and sin no more. The second time is in the next chapter, John 9, in which there's a blind man and his disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents? And the emphasis is on the healing power of the gospel. But in both instances, Jesus gives hope and joy to the people he's interacting with. So clearly, it's not just who we are. But clearly, Jesus is the light of the world. And the only way we become lights is because he has so poured his grace and his mercy and his love that it overflows and then shines out of us. It's only after we experience his forgiveness and his healing in which that we can be lights. And so we must know our identity, that you are a beloved child of God, forgiven of our sins, that you've been brought into life and now you have hope, that you have peace, that you walk with God and you know him. We're not lights on our own. We don't have all the answers, but we reflect the light of Jesus. And that's the great idea here. Jesus calls us to do that in this dark world. He calls us to be like the Corinthian, uh, the people of the Corinthian church, to share the love of God with the world around us. You know, Paul wrote, the, the wise people of the world have no answers. I would add, they think that the only way to solve our problems is to have more education, more knowledge, more meetings around the table, drinking tea. But our problem is not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of attempt. It's something much, much more fundamental. It's really just the world's estrangement from God. And only Christians can give helpful advice. Now, that's a boastful claim, I think. But it's not because of who we are. But instead, it's because of who Jesus is and how he has poured himself into us. I mean, if you just think about world history, there really has been no light in the world outside of the Christian church. Jesus spoke these words some 2,000 years ago to a group of ordinary people, fishermen, tax collectors, and the like. And he said, you are the light of the world. 
who is responsibility? Who is responsible for the, for the universities, for the hospitals, for taking care of the sick and the outcast, making sure the widows are provided for, that the orphans are grown up with love? So he says to us as a church, you and you alone are the light of the world. Is that not an amazing idea? That God calls us to be his instruments, to bring about change, to proclaim his gospel so that people will become alive, truly alive, to share the love of Christ and to see them receive forgiveness, to see them be healed of all the hurts and wounds that they've experienced. To see that there's an under that there's a purpose in life, and that's to worship God and to follow Him. It's to know the one person, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to illumine the darkness and to forgive sins. Jesus' work wasn't just to forgive sins in general, but it was to make us alive to God, to make us new men and women. And he gives us new desires, new dreams, new outlooks. He gives us new life, a life that hates the darkness but loves the light. A life that loves God and calls us to walk humbly with him. Of course, I'm not saying we do the work of regeneration. I mean, that, that's a sovereign work of God uh, to the people around us. We cannot bring anyone newness of life, but it's our responsibility to live that new life that God has put into us, that others may see it and be challenged by it. Again, we can't just say, I want the blessings, but I'm gonna put my light or put a cover over my light and not let those blessings shine. We cannot keep it to ourselves. We must see the world as lost and in darkness around us. And we must be willing, wanting to shine the light of Jesus. That is their only hope for the salvation that we've experienced. That is the only way they're going to experience forgiveness and joy, to have meaning and purpose. Let me see if I can make it a little bit more concrete. I think it can be done in many, many ways, but let's, let me give you three ways. The first one is we live with hope. We don't let the circumstances rob us of hope or joy. I mean, I, I, I don't know you, you don't know me. We all have problems, situations in our life that are difficult, that are trying. But we live with hope. It's not that we're constantly happy, but we focus on what is good and lovely around us. We, we, we find reasons to be thankful every day. We look to God to be our strength, our source, our hope. But we have this different mentality, this different attitude towards, towards these problems. And it is God is with us. God is with you. God is with me. And that makes all the difference. The second suggestion I have is 
positively express that hope with our words. How do you talk with people? How do you speak at home? What are the words you use? Our words should be different. You know, I look at the world around us and it's sort of getting uglier, we're getting ruder, we're getting louder. So my question is, how do you talk at home to your spouse or to your children? How do you talk at work? What are the words you use? Do you just fit in? I remember in Ukraine, I was, I was speaking with a guy um, we as the elders were speaking with a guy and he was getting very hostile with us and using some very crude words, some curse words. And after he left, I asked the guys, I, the guys, the, my elders, I said, is he a Christian? They're like, yeah. I said, well, those really aren't words that a Christian should use. And I said, oh, you got to overlook those words. He works in the marketplace. Those are the common words. That's what he's around all the time. And my, my question to them was, but aren't we different? Don't we use different words? Another example. In my culture, in those cultures, it's very rare to say thank you. It, we have a word for it, but it's hardly ever used in common. So a fellow missionary was walking through the park and he sold an, uh, saw an old babushka, an old grandmother, and she was street cleaning. She was cleaning the leaves and she was working. And he went up to her and just said, you know, thank you for your work, for your service. Thank you for making the park more beautiful for me. And in typical Ukrainian style, she sort of straighten herself up and then she started putting a little bit more swing in her in her sweeping it made her day that somebody recognized her and said thank you do we do that with the people around us last suggestion is that we can do it with our actions there was a movement a number of years ago that we said we should just practice random acts of kindness i don't like that idea random acts of kindness but this was driven home to me last winter. I was coming home from our prayer meeting at, at church and um, you know, living in Russia, winters from October to April. We have snow on the ground from November through April. So I was coming home, it was a, I think it was late January. There was probably 10 inches of snow all around. There were snow banks here and there. And I was coming home and in Russia, when I, my, my approach to my apartment, it's a two lane road, but often people park on one side. So there's really only one lane. And the person who has the right of way is the person who gets there first. And so I get, I'm coming up my lane and I see this truck. And that's the second rule is the bigger car has the right of way. So I said, I got to get out of the way. There's nowhere for me to get out of the way. So I try to sneak over to the left. I, I realize he stopped. He's looking at me. He's not sure he can get by my car without scraping it. So I said, all right, there's a little snowbank there. I got four wheel drive. I'll put it in four wheel drive. I punched it. I went over to drift and boom, sat down. Couldn't move. Trucks go by. I get out, I'm looking at the situation. Some guy comes up to me and says, do you need help? 
He said, yeah. He said, I have nowhere to go. I'm not in a hurry. Let me help you. So I run back to my apartment building, get a couple shovels. Takes about 45 minutes to dig, a, dig, dig me out. But I was struck by that statement. I'm not in a hurry. I am always in a hurry. I gotta go here, I gotta go here, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. As I said, I don't like that word random, but how often do you plan to do goodness or kindness? It should be planned. Can you plan it in your life? You know, I'm gonna serve somebody today. I'm gonna find somebody that needs my help and I'm gonna give it to them. To do just something special for them just because. Let me close with one last statement. We're seeing, we have seen that we're to be salt and light. I hope I've explored a little about how to do so, how to be so. But let me just now emphasize that it needs to be done in the right way. Jesus says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your heavenly Father. The key in that statement then is that so that. There's a complete absence of pride, of doing something to be noticed. That's a little difficult to put into practice. Is it not to, to draw that line between functioning as salt and light and drawing attention to ourselves, especially in our narcissistic age where everything's, everything we do is to scream, look at me, look at how wonderful I am, look at the great times I'm having, look at how beautiful, how strong I am. And yet that's what we're told to do to do all the positive actions, to do all, if you will, the negative, to restrain from doing stuff, not to draw attention to ourselves, but that people would see God. So we're to live and speak in which God would be glorified. Our self has to be forgotten. It has to be absent. absent. Self needs to be crushed in all its sub subtlety. And the purpose is simply that God would be, receive all the glory. So not only are we to glorify God with our, with our lips, with our hands, with our actions, but our actions are then to cause others to glorify God. That's why we live the way we do. It's, it's a, it's a, an act of thanksgiving to God because of all the blessings he's poured into us. Again, going back to those beatitudes at the beginning of the sermon. We want God to be glorified. Is that the way? Is that the reason you live the way you do? That God would be glorified in all that you do and think and say, may God use glory, may use us to bring glory to himself. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have truly loved us. 
You have shown us mercy upon mercy. They are new every morning. And Lord, we're thankful to you for the love that you have given to us, that you have made us your children. We ask now simply that you would make us like Jesus, that we would truly be salt and light, and that we would bring glory to you and you alone. We ask this in Christ's name, our Savior. Amen.